Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we have our third installment in our Medici Super Series, Michelangelo. And we can't talk about the Medici family without mentioning their role as patrons of the arts. And Lorenzo the Magnificent alone worked with Botticelli, Verrocchio, Leonardo da Vinci, and obviously, most famously, with the young Michelangelo. But Michelangelo's relationship to the Medici family didn't end with Lorenzo. He goes from a teen living at their palazzo to a man with a Medici hit on his head. So we've got to figure out how this happened. And how did an impoverished boy from a rocky outpost become one of the greatest artists of history? And it's critical to understand Michelangelo's importance in his own lifetime before we can appreciate him historically, though, because it it explains a lot. Yeah, he's this moody, guilty kind of guy. He loves Florence. That's central about his character. But he's so incredibly famous while he's alive that his career is really well documented. He was actually the first Western artist to have a bio published while he was still alive. And he actually has two rival bios. There's Vasari's The Lives, and then there's also, I guess, what you would consider more of a, an authorized biography by his assistant. And we also have a lot of his stuff, his letters and sketches and poetry. And consequently, a man of this caliber and somebody who's so famous has a huge effect on his contemporaries, even his seniors like Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo left Florence for Milan, came back 20 years later and found the art world a completely different place. And we have a great quote from Hart's History of Italian Renaissance Art, which we pulled from a lot for this podcast. And he says of Michelangelo that one could accept him or rebel against him, but one could not ignore him. So with that quote, we will take you to Michelangelo's early life. He was born Michelangelo de Lodovico Buonarroti Simoni on March 6th, 1475 in Caprese, a Florentine outpost and rather barren region. And his father was Lodovico de Simoni Buonarroti. And he was of a noble family, or they had been noble for many generations, but they had lost that. They were also very poor. And his father was serving as the governor of the region. And they returned to Florence only about a month after Michelangelo was born, when his father's term came up. And one important fact from this time, though, he had a wet nurse from a village of stonecutters, and he liked to play up this connection a lot, the fact that he had his love of uh, sculpture and stonecutting almost instilled from, from his infancy. And his father and uncle were against him becoming an artist. Because of that noble lineage, they thought he should be above physical labor. But they finally gave up, and when he was 13, which was a bit old to start, uh, they placed him in Domenico Ghirlandaio's studio for a term of three years. And he's a paid apprentice, which was a big deal. And he leaves after a year because he is just so good when... He's invited by Lorenzo the Magnificent to his home where he can work in the Medici Gardens and the art school that's held there. And he does receive some instruction when he's living with Lorenzo, but most of the benefit comes from just being around all of the amazing artworks that Lorenzo owns, the the Medici statuary. They have all this ancient Roman sculpture, ancient coins and cameos, and a fair amount of interesting modern Renaissance stuff as well. 
He also benefits from living with the Medici and seeing what life is like for this powerful political family. He dines with Lorenzo and with the Medici boys. And during his spare time, he goes around the city copying works of Giotto and Masaccio. It's actually in the Brancacci Chapel that he criticized the drawing of a sculptor and gets a broken nose for his trouble, something that he's so self-conscious about for his whole life. And his first extant work from his teen years is a marble relief called The Madonna of the Stairs, which is rather crude in drapery, but great as far as the uh, muscles go. And, yeah, <laughs> what he did with that. He also did The Battle of Lapiths and Centaurs. And Lorenzo dies in 1492. So Michelangelo is back with his dad in a modest house near Santa Croce. And during this time in his life is when he probably does a crucifixion for a Medici son and also starts dissecting corpses to make it, which is something he'll do for the rest of his life to make his human figures realistic. It's kind of strange to think of our famous Renaissance artists having these da, da Vinci did bodies too. donated that to them. pretty cool. Yeah. But in 1494, he makes a brief visit to Venice and then to Bologna. And he probably also hears Savonarola preach during this time, who we have already podcasted on. Um, and as an old man, he still reads Savonarola's work and remembers his voice. So he obviously has a, a big impression on him early on. But let's go back to Florence, which at the time was still the center of art. But art wasn't paying as well as it used to at this time. So a lot of artists were moving on from Florence and going other places. And in 1496, Michelangelo went to Rome. He was 21. And Pope Alexander VI, Lucrezia Borgia's father, was in charge. And there's obviously a lot of amazing stuff in Rome for the young Michelangelo to study, amazing um, antiquities. But he does a lot of private commissions during this time, too, like Bacchus for a rich Roman, which um, it's, a, it's an interesting statue. You can tell Bacchus has been definitely indulging in his drink of choice. And he does the Doni Madonna, the Bruges Madonna, just nice little, nice little works that uh, help establish his early career. But his first major commission came in in 1498 when he was 23, and it was a pietà, which was an uncommon subject in Italy at the time. So a pietà subject is the Virgin Mary holding Christ in her lap right after he's been taken off the, cr- off the cross. And it kind of echoes Madonna and child scenes, except there's all this tragedy involved in it. And Michelangelo's pietà kind of defines the the scene, ultimately. It's huge. Well, it's huge because you think you have to have a full-grown Christ. Obviously, the Madonna who's holding him has to be enormous. Michelangelo's Pietà is also of note because it's his only signed sculpture. Uh, Vasari writes that some Lombards came to see it at St. Peter's, and they thought it must be made by one of their own countrymen. And I guess Michelangelo got word of this, and so he snuck into St. Peter's at night and and chiseled in his signature. But if you go to St. Peter's today to see the Pietà, unfortunately it's behind bulletproof glass because in 1977, a deranged geologist had to go and attack it. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not laughing at attacking the statue. I am laughing that the attack was by a deranged geologist. Okay, during this time, Michelangelo is also working on a public project. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's the David statue. And it was to be made from a block of marble that was from the 1460s. It had already been partially blocked by Agostino de Duccio, who'd been working on a design probably done by Donatello. 
and it was intended to go on the Cathedral of Florence to match and go with Donatello's Joshua. But because it's so awesome, people don't want to put it up so high. The Republic wants it in front of the Palazzo dei Priori, which is now the Palazzo di Vecchio, as a symbol of the Republic. The Medici, remember, have been in exile since shortly after Lorenzo the Magnificent's death. We talked about that a little bit in our previous podcast. And the night the statue is installed, pro-Medici youths hit it with rocks. So here we have the deranged geologists, the pro-Medici youths, all these people hating on Michelangelo. So since Florence is a republic again, and we don't have Medici power, we have a guy called Sodorini, who's the gonfaloniere for life. And that's basically the protector of the republic, the standard bearer. And he doesn't like how nude David is. So he commissions a girdle, essentially, of bronze and copper leaves to, to go around David's waist. Metal underwear. Metal underpants. Yeah, yeah exactly. Chastity belt for David. Which is which is pretty lame if you think about it. Some side notes on the David statue. During the third expulsion of the Medici from Florence in 1527, a bench is thrown from the window of the Palazzo de Priori, and it shatters David's left arm and hand, and a teenage Vasari and another teenager end up saving the pieces for reattachment. And the marble of the statue is also soft and suffered a lot from being in the rain. So in the 19th century, it was moved to the Skylit Rotunda of the Academia. After David's success, Michelangelo has lots and lots of big projects. He liked ambitious work. He liked doing the, you know, big, big things, but he didn't like working with assistants, so he didn't get a lot done. He was very difficult to work with. Um, for example, there was this huge fresco for the Sala del Gran Concilio that he was supposed to do, or 12 marble apostles for the Florence Cathedral, and he ends up only doing St. Matthew. But he gets a customer in Rome that he can't refuse. Pope Julius II. So in 1505, Pope Julius says, basically, come to Rome, make me a tomb, put 40 statues on it. It's a huge commission. And Michelangelo spends about a year bringing marble from Carrara before the Pope calls off the project. He realizes it's going to be too expensive. And Michelangelo, always suspicious of of other artists, even just onlookers in his own family, thinks that Bramante, who's also working at St. Peter's, might have had a hand in the Pope's decision to cut off funding. And he is so, so angry. He's famous for his fits of rage. He storms back to Florence in 1506. And This project, the Tomb Commission, turns out to be a real nightmare for Michelangelo his whole life. He He's very much invested in the project, but it goes through multiple design changes, lots of halted work, stop payment. It's it's always sort of hovering over him for for nearly his entire life. But he considered himself a sculptor, not a painter like we often think of him, so that's why this was so important to him. And we also came... Across a little fact that we couldn't figure out where else to put, so we're just going to throw it out there right now. We mentioned he was a little bit strange, and if you want a fashion tip from Michelangelo, he wore boots made from cured dog skin for months at a time, and when it came time to remove them, his skin peeled off. So we have our raging dog skin booted Michelangelo. Angry Michelangelo. But the Pope isn't going to stand Michelangelo's fits of rage, and he's not going to let him hide out in Florence. So he has the Florentine authorities return Michelangelo to Rome. But this time, he has another project for him, and it's a bronze colossal of the Pope. This seems like a very egotistical Pope with his giant tomb and now his bronze colossal. Um, Michelangelo does this, but we have no drawings of it, no records of it. 
It's installed in the newly conquered Bologna, and three years later, anti-papal forces push it off its pedestal, melt it, and cast it into a canon, which they name La Giulia, which is the feminine version of the Pope's name. And it's it's meant to be the canon firing at the Pope when he retreats from town. In 1508, Michelangelo had just gotten back to Florence once again, when the Pope once again says, come to Rome, there's this thing I want you to do, it's called the Sistine Chapel. And the Sistine Chapel is a special place for the popes. It's the chief consecrated space in the Vatican, and it's used for papal conclaves. If you want to think back to when Pope John Paul II died and had to pick a new pope. But it's mostly decorated at the time, too. It's It's been around for a while, and it's got the life of Moses, the life of Christ, historic popes. Everything is done except the ceiling. And so the pope suggests to Michelangelo, how about we include the 12 apostles on the ceiling, each with their own panel. Michelangelo is not a fan of this idea. He thinks it's way too straightforward. It's not going to be interesting enough. And instead, we end up with Old Testament prophets and sibyls from antiquity, plus all these scenes from Genesis that go backward in time. When you enter the room, it starts with Noah. It progresses to God's separation of light and darkness. And The subjects probably would have been a little theologically complex for Michelangelo, so it's unlikely that he rejected the apostle idea and presented this plan instead. He probably couldn't even read Latin, so it's likely that Michelangelo had a theological advisor of sorts in Marco Vigiero della Rovera, and he's the Pope's cousin and probably helped him out, you know, with the planning and choosing which subjects would be represented. In 1508, Michelangelo sets to work on his preliminary sketches before he makes cartoons. And because I don't know a lot about fresco making, Sarah's going to explain that part a little bit. Well, really simply, the cartoons, you can't freehand on fresco, especially when it's these huge scenes that are going to be on top of a ceiling. So you make cartoons, which are basically life-size mock-ups for what you're ultimately going to depict in fresco. You lay the cartoons up against wet and tonico, and you outline the edges with a stylus, which is a little metal instrument. So you can see these little pinpricks sometimes in the plaster. And then when you're actually applying the color to the to the fresco, you have to do it in pretty small stages. So you have the wet plaster on, you layer on the color. Um, It's not like an oil painting or something where you're gradually putting more and more layers of color on, on top of each other. You have to work quickly. Michelangelo isn't perfect at this whole stylus and cartoon bit at first, and the first work has to be redone because it molds. But as he goes along, he gets a lot more confident and works much faster and eventually is able to eliminate some of those prep steps, like the complete drawings and the stylus pricks. And consequently, the figures become a lot more expressive. And the whole thing, remarkably, only takes about four years, less than four years, actually, probably including an interruption of about a year when the funds were cut. And to do a little myth-busting, I think a lot of people imagine Michelangelo reclined as he's as he's yeah, painting on working his back. on these frescoes. That's not the case. He designs special uh, scaffolding, which is suspended by beams. And this allows him to paint standing up, so he's able to walk around, get his all his supplies together. That must really hurt your neck. Well, and it does hurt his neck. He actually writes about uh, about it and includes a little, a little sketch of him. <laughs> Looks very uncomfortable. 
When the scaffolding only came down occasionally for him to to review his work and look up and see how it was looking, the first time was in 1510, and from then on the figures get bigger. One assumes he got down, looked up, and realized when things are that small and detailed, you can't see them yeah, from the um, ground of the chapel. See, can't see everything I painted there. So obviously the most impressive scene, or the most famous scene, is the creation of Adam. It has been spoofed in a million ways, everything from E.T. to George Michael's muscle suit. It's, it's quite a quite a spectrum there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's what we've been most impressed with, I'd say. The restoration of the Sistine Chapel ceiling took place from 1980 to 1999, and it removed centuries of lamp, candle, and incense smoke, a coat of animal glue, even Greek wine that had been added to brighten the colors. And for the longest time, people had thought maybe Michelangelo just worked in very in a very muted palette. Yeah. You know, he was a dark. Moody guy, kind of guy, but it turns out once all of that was removed, he worked in in vivid, brilliant, beautiful colors. It's super colors. If you've if you've ever seen the Sistine Chapel or seen real true to life um, photographs of it, just bright, bright colors, sherbet colors almost. <laughs> But in 1513, we're back to that old tomb for Julius, Michelangelo's both favorite and nightmare project. But this time there's a new design. He only finishes three figures, Moses and a couple of slaves. And he ends up keeping these for himself because the design and scale of the project changes once again. And he keeps them until he's old before giving them to a family that helped him during an illness. But Julius dies in 1513. And um, sounds like the perfect time to make a tomb, but it's not. The funding dries up. And some other changes happen, too, at Julius's death that really affect Michelangelo and Florence as well. So it's time for us to catch up with the Medici. We haven't forgotten them. The Medici were expelled in 1494, as we've said, but they came back in after ousting Soderini. The city is being ruled again in the old-fashioned, behind-the-scenes type of Medici way that Lawrence the Magnificent had pioneered, but this time it's by his son, Giuliano. And his older brother is the powerful Cardinal Giovanni, but when Julius II dies, Cardinal Giovanni becomes Pope Leo X. So Leo X and Michelangelo have known each other since they were boys, and Michelangelo was living in the Medici Palace. And Leo obviously doesn't want Michelangelo working on a Pope Julius project. And he doesn't even want him working on a papacy project. He's almost more of a Medici before he's a Pope. So he brings brings Michelangelo back to Florence to work on Medici-approved projects. Things are a little bit sketchy in Florence at the time, though. Leo's replaced his brother with his nephew, Lorenzo, as ruler of Florence, and Lorenzo's just not that great. He's mostly a puppet ruler. He's very repressive, and he dies early, but not before fathering his one legitimate child, Catherine de' Medici, who we will talk about in some future podcasts. She'll get an episode for sure. So Leo X puts his cousin, Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, in charge, and you'll probably remember him from our Pazzi Conspiracy podcast. He's Giuliano de' Medici's son, who's the guy who's actually killed at the Duomo, his illegitimate son. So Giulio and Michelangelo work really closely together, and they have a pretty respectful give-and-take relationship. Um, and in 1516, Michelangelo is commissioned to design a facade for the Medici's church of San Lorenzo. And he actually builds a road to the mountains just to get marble for this facade and this design of his. But the contract is annulled in 1520. And 
angry Michelangelo. I mean, he's got good reason to be angry about this stuff, but he's very upset. He ends up instead working on kind of a smaller scale project for San Lorenzo, which is the Medici Chapel, designing tombs for some of the young Medici heirs who have died early. And the tombs have these beautiful figures of night and day and dawn and dusk. And they're actually often mistaken for the tombs of more illustrious family members. They're they're pretty much nobodies in the grand scheme of, of Medici family members, but they have these lovely elaborate tombs. But we have a bit of a Medici break, an interlude in power, when Leo X died in 1521, and a Dutch pope took over, Adrian VI, who's very into reform and cleaning up Medici messes in general, and (laughs) consequently, he doesn't last too long, he was probably poisoned, and he was succeeded by Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, who became Clement VII, and Clement kept his day job ruling Florence, as well as taking over the papacy. Yeah, just because he's pope doesn't mean he's about to leave everything at home behind. Well, and this is when the people of the city realize they're owned by the papacy and they're not happy Yeah, they have this great um, history of being a republic, and now they realize what their true position is. So by 1526, Clement has gotten himself into too much trouble with the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. And this results in a violent sacking of Rome in 1527, which ends the High Renaissance, this great period of, of art that we, we think of, or, you know, Michelangelo's peak. It's over. So this results in the violent sacking of Rome, which happens in 1527 and ends the High Renaissance. And Clement is forced to flee Rome. And a lot of people think, you know what? Maybe this is the judgment of God on Medici Rome. Florence definitely thinks so. And they take the opportunity to throw off the Medici and reinstate the Republic. But while the city is besieged, Michelangelo designed fortifications. He really understood defensive structures well, which is interesting, again, to see how his talents could go across so many different areas. How, I mean, he's a Renaissance man, to to put it in a cliche, (laughs) but yeah, that somebody can do um, great fresco work and, you know, gorgeous sculpture and then design fortifications. It's pretty crazy. But Florence is captured again in 1530, and the new Medici government is pretty strict, and Michelangelo is actually ordered to be assassinated for helping the Republic, for helping with those fortifications and all that. And the canon of San Lorenzo, and this is how crazy it is, it's the Medici Church, the canon of San Lorenzo hides him until the Pope, the Medici Pope, issues an order to spare his life so he can get back to work on the Medici Chapel. (laughs) It's just also twisted and and tied up. And the Medici ruler at the time, Alessandro, who's the first hereditary Duke of Florence, they've they've ditched that, oh, we're just behind the scenes running the Republic thing. No, now we're out front. That's over. Um, He's a pretty cruel guy. So when Clement dies and Michelangelo doesn't have that protection of the Medici Pope anymore, he gets out of Florence. He's worried for his life. So he leaves Florence for Rome for the last time in 1534, hoping to return someday. But this is the point in his life where he starts contemplating his own mortality. We have lots of letters to his family from this time. Um, he's really concerned about his nephew marrying and, and you know carrying on the family name. And some have suggested, because some of his later letters in his life, that he was homosexual because he wrote... 
a lot about his strong attachments to young men. But there's another theory saying, you know, there aren't any similar indications from when he was younger. So maybe this is when he was looking for a surrogate son. He also writes a lot of poetry along with his letters. And um, just to show again what sort of a strange guy he is, he starts taking to wearing hair shirts under his clothes, mimicking John the Baptist. And He's still working, though. Don't think of him as fading off into obscurity in Rome. He has some of his his biggest stuff here. The new pope, Paul III, commissions Michelangelo to come back to fresco work and come back to the Sistine Chapel after a hiatus of 25 years. And he works on the Last Judgment, which is interesting for something. It's the, the same artist, the same location, but it's such a different style. It's um, It's the difference of a quarter century, I guess. But he really turned to architecture a lot in his later years because it was less physical. His art before that was a bit hard on the body. And most notably, he was the head architect of projects at St. Peter's. He designed the Dome of St. Peter's, which Sarah's been emailing me pictures of all day. But it was built after his death, and it's not clear just how much of the design followed what he intended to do and how much of it was other people. So Michelangelo died February 18th, 1564 in Rome. And an interesting thing about him, for somebody who is so famous during his own lifetime, that fame doesn't slip away at all. I mean, if anything, he, he becomes more famous when, when we see his influence on later artists. And that brings us to an art-related listener mail. So this edition of Listener Mail is real mail. We got a postcard, as we oh, we love getting postcards, as we've mentioned. They're all tacked before. up on our window. And this one is a postcard of Rembrandt's The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it's from Chloe. And she wrote, I'm sending this card along in hopes that the both of you will do a podcast on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or the heist that took place there 20 years ago. And I think this is such a good idea. I, I definitely think we're going to be doing a podcast on this subject because we actually have a really cool article on it already. Yes, five biggest art heists. And we also have one called How to Steal a Painting. You can find them both if you search on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Mist in History. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 